0: Uh, good morning, Church of the City. My name is Dave Martin. I'm one of the elders in Church of the City, and it's my pleasure to be able to teach from the passage that was just read. And as we've done that, one of the things that is a hallmark, I think, of Church of the City is a pursuing emotional, healthy spirituality, which means that we want to invite God in to be the master not only of our thoughts and thinking or the information we receive, but the processing of that and how we live it out which includes our emotions, our responses, that includes that whole invitation of God to be not only our Father in a relational sense, which is true, but also in the sense of leading us, guiding us, instructing us, correcting us, encouraging us with his eye upon us in all those quadrants of life, mind, emotional, body, physical, health, All of those matters. So let's take a moment and just center ourselves before him and personally invite him to be our leader and teacher. Thank you, God, that you are in charge of life. Sometimes we're confused by that when we speak that truth and then we see wars, aggression, difficulty challenge, financial calamity and upset, social division, all kinds of things that affect us at a very personal and private level as well as a corporate social level. And we turn to you in those moments and we say, would you come and lead us out of our confusion, disappointment at times, frustration and fear, into the place of understanding who you are, what you want for us and even from us, help us to understand and apply the truth that we're learning so that we would uh, wait well, that we would wait on you, that we would develop in patience and endurance, which actually leads us to a point of developed hope. Because if in this world, as Paul writes in another place, um, only in this life we have hope, we're of all men most miserable. Because we've been counting on your promises in a future that is only fulfilled in time and space at your return. We're inviting you, Father, to not only lead us into the truth of your word, but the understanding and application of it, and how that is going to affect us personally, privately, and relationally. And, and we're wanting that, Father, even though at times we are frustrated or finding it a challenge to work through those things before you. That's just being honest and candid with you. And thank you. You can take that. Thank you that we can cry out to you in our fear and frustration. And you don't make us feel either ashamed or stupid, but you promise if anyone wants to figure it out, and needs wisdom. All we need to do is ask, and you're glad to give it. And you'll never make us feel small or ashamed for asking. And so we do that again. Thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves. Thank you that we don't need to inform you in prayer as if you're ignorant or disinterested. But we can unburden ourselves and tell you what we see. And then invite you to lead us into your light and understanding. And we do so again. For your glory and our benefit. In Jesus' name, amen. In this passage of scripture that um, Naomi just read for us we have um, what is going to be the final message of the series Worth the Wait. And this morning what I want you to see is that really Worth the Wait, if I phrase it another way in sort of more modern language or jargon, no that's not true because Worth the Wait is as modern in jargon as I'm going to say, but I want to use different words to explain it, delayed gratification. In other words, you are going to wait for the benefit you want for, in other words, not taking something that's immediate, waiting for something that is better. And you all understand what that means. It's like sitting down at a delicious meal and having two slices instead of one. And you know your body doesn't need it, it's just your mouth is saying, well, that was good, let's have more of that. You understand what delayed gratification means? It is putting something off for a better result. And if you're like me, it's just because you've been having two slices too often, and now your body is bearing the consequence of an appetite that hasn't been controlled. Delayed gratification says, in the words of another social influencer, nothing tastes as good as skinny. What do we mean by that? Is delayed gratification. You want something else, and so you're willing to engage in waiting or in discipline to receive it. All of those things are connected because delayed gratification, which has become a much-studied theme in psychology because of its impact on things such as greater mental stability, improved work performance, increased social competence, and reduced engagement in harmful behaviors, all are connected to worth the wait. Uh, Not simply doing what you want to do, but choosing something that is better than the thing uh, that's quite attractive to you in the here and now. Delayed gratification really then equals worth the wait. In summary, the power to say no to immediate benefit, because of a greater benefit in the future, is the key to success in every area of life, including finance, health, social relationships, sports, academics, and importantly for us, it has an application to our faith in God, willing to believe Him and His promises instead of simply sorting it out in our own strength and understanding. Now, this was uncovered for us in terms of the psychological um, studying and research that's been going on in a very significant test in the 1970s that was devised by Walter Mitchell, and it dealt with four-year-olds. So here's a picture of a four-year-old looking at a bowl of marshmallows. It's called the marshmallow test. And and, and basically the premise, there was a little bit more involved, but basically it was very simple. What the researchers did is they had a marshmallow in front of a four-year-old and said, you can have the marshmallow now if you want, but if you wait, you can have two. Now you can imagine many four-year-olds couldn't wait. Why? Because they had not developed that sense of it's worth the wait. And so they ate the marshmallow but there were some who believed what the researchers said and were willing to delay that immediate gratification and wait for the reward. Now, what Walter Mischel actually did that was even more beneficial was he began to study those children at four who could say no to one marshmallow and wait for two and to see if that had any impact as they became adults. And you know what it did? they discovered that those children at four who could say no actually scored better academically, did better socially, engaged in less um, uh, risky behaviors, and had better acumen, better academic uh, ability when it came to studying at advanced levels. That began a whole development in the social sciences, or psychological sciences, of why we do what we do, and the benefit of delayed gratification. All of those who delayed eating the marshmallow for the promise of getting two became adults who were more likely to finish college, more likely to earn higher incomes, and less likely to become overweight. Interesting, isn't it? That that ability tracked with them through their life. Now, here's the good news. You can keep developing that. If you didn't have it at four, I'm not telling you, oh, sorry, that ship has sailed and it's too late, you can't get on it. The good news is that you can develop worth-the-wait mentality, delayed gratification, if you're willing to do the hard work of saying no to something immediate in place of something better in the future, which really is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which teaches us and coaches us that the best is yet to come. Jay Shetty, a renowned podcaster, interviewer and self-help promoter has put it this way, if you don't sacrifice for what you want, what you want becomes the sacrifice. Now That's pretty bright, isn't it? And it's also pretty easy to remember But let me read it again, if you don't sacrifice for what you want, in other words, willing to wait and do what's necessary to achieve it, then what you want will become sacrificed. You won't get it. In the Bible section that we read, we're thinking this through this morning, and we learn that there's more to worth the wait than simply saying no to something that we want in the moment. While that is the meta-plot of the series we've been studying, It's Worth the Wait, and how God works in history and in the lives of individuals to develop that and encourage that in our lives, the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the writer, is telling us that there are several other key principles that are at work, and we're going to explore them. And this is where we start. When facing God's call to obey through endurance... And engagement in life, the key principle at work for us is that we trust God. In other words, the power of the believer to be able to delay something that's immediate that you want is because you actually trust God to be true to his word and to fulfill his promises. You see, if you don't have a relationship that is based on that growing trust in who he is and what he said, it's going to be very difficult for you to practice faith in a hope that you cannot see and cannot touch. But when you trust him, not only believe the right things, but when you lean into those things called truth, and your relationship with Him and experience grows, you have that fuel to be able to direct your life according to what He wants for you in place of those selfish things that only want what you want for yourself. And you become transformed through the work of the Gospel, that started with what Jesus did for you, but transforms you and changes your identity into who you are as his child who loves him and receives every good thing you need from him, both through faith and through patient endurance. You trust him. Now, that doesn't mean that there's never a moment of, God, really, are you, are you gonna help me in this? Because what I'm suggesting to you is the application of those things is not just a slam dunk. Trust fuels our decision to follow God when the context is difficult, when it's even overwhelming, when it's frustrating, when it's wounding, when it's fear-filled, when there's some chronic element that we know we're not going to be able to lessen. It's going to be this way, and we just don't like it. And you know, one of the amazing things is that when we're in that experience, often called suffering or a wounding, we can do what Psalm 13 tells us, which is on our next slide. It's a a picture of anguish. You know, the remarkable thing about this is that when a child of God in God's presence says these things to God, he doesn't go, look, stop, people are going to get the wrong idea about me. Like, like, you know, my reputation is at stake. You can't say those things. No, that's not true. They're written throughout the Psalms and elsewhere within the Scripture, inviting us to be real with God in our relationship and in our prayer life. So let's just think about that. When you are totally upset, frustrated, and cannot see your way through, what we're learning about God is He can take your anguish. He can take your frustration. He can take your anger. He can take you. I don't know about you, but I never liked it when my kid looked at me and said something to the equivalent of, I hate you. Well, you know, I wanted to sort of reprimand that child for all kinds of bruised ego reasons. <laughs> you know, I remember one day, Jonathan, our eldest, who was just like me, so quite a challenge to raise in terms of having his own desire and interest and highly self-confident. You understand all the things that I'm saying, and one day he looked at me, I think he was four, and he said to me, who made you the boss of my life? Well, on the moment, I said, well, actually God did, and when you are a parent, maybe you'll have the same experience with your kids. You understand that God can take it. You don't have to kind of Hold it in and imagine that he's so displeased for you having thoughts that are so raw. Where are you, God? Hear my cry, O Lord. Attend unto my prayer. From the ends of the earth, I cry out to you. When I am overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I am. I can't find solid ground. Psalm 61. We have the right. Not only the right, maybe because it's written so frequently, the freedom to express what's going on in our life when we're questioning, is it worth the wait? Is there a way out of this, around this, that I don't have to face this? We also have the counsel, and I'm drifting from my notes here, but it occurs to me to say, do you remember the anguish of Jesus in the garden when he was praying? Let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this, is what it says. I I think I'm ready to resign from this. This is overwhelming me. This is so hard. Please, Father. You Don't hear him say, if you loved me but I think it's getting close, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what? Your will be done. I'm in it. All in. I believe the promise. In this context, why am I I suggesting those things? Because it says within this passage of Scripture in verses 32 and 33, this reality. He says, I want you to remember that when you first believed in those early days when you were enlightened, received the truth of the gospel, you stood your ground, you were confident in this when there was this tremendous challenge that you were facing, and you really got it. Now, we don't live like that in In our community right now we have more what i would call some sort of social awkwardness i'm reminded of a time when a pastor i know down in hamilton well within our fellowship of churches and he was involved in a huge multi-million dollar project that they had dreamed together and talked with different stakeholders and were building a facility that would not only house the church but a big portion of what they were doing would Give uh, socially subsidized housing to people that were underprivileged and on the street and dealing with addictions and mental illness and all kinds of things. And it was a, it is and has been built as a huge project. But at one key point, they still needed significant uh, partnership with others around them who would support the project. Church was putting in what it did for its benefit, but it needed more within the community to really make this dream real and so my friend was invited to come in before some stakeholders make the appeal again about what this would really do and how it would serve the city and really what the motivation behind it was tremendous opportunity then for him to present he believed his hope and what fueled this was the gospel of Jesus to be a light and an influence in the community and to care for those that were in trouble and so he spoke the gospel openly Carefully, transparently to that group. When he had finished, he sat down, and one of the men who had uh, already rallied and given significant support leaned into my friend and said, and I thought you were smart. Wow. Now, what was that about? That was about that man wanting my friend to feel embarrassed and ashamed for his faith. That's what it was. He didn't say openly, it wasn't public ridicule, but it was a sense that that friendship wasn't going to flourish because he disrespected my friend for his faith. We face that kind of reproach in our culture. People who disregard with our faith basis of life and how it informs and fuels our decisions, and we will at times be made to feel less than. That's what this word reproach really means in the passage. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach really means that people wanted you to feel embarrassed and ashamed for your alliance with the gospel of Jesus. And we'll face that. In our context, socially, it will probably be one-to-one in a less visible context. Not always, because sometimes you're in the lunchroom and somebody raises something and is really at that point undermining you and exposing you as a rabid evangelical who believes the gospel of Jesus Christ and stakes their life onto it and asks you a question designed to embarrass you. You know what I'm saying. Well, that's just part and parcel of living within the world as it currently is. But what this group faced was marginalization was loss of privilege was sometimes the loss of property that was seized because they wouldn't worship the emperor and they wouldn't offer incense on the altar and they wouldn't go through those culturally acceptable forms that everybody was told just to do and look you don't have to believe it you just have to do it and the christians were saying but i serve the god of heaven and wouldn't and as a result were not only facing social ostracization, but they were losing jobs, they were losing property, they were losing livelihood. I have another friend from a Middle Eastern country who also came as a refugee, had to walk across his borders, but did so after he was being targeted by the secret police of the government of his country, and they were attempting to kill him fell out of a window, did bodily damage, broke his leg, couldn't find anyone to mend it, and at that limped and made his way across another border and from that eventually to our land. He lost everything. Lost inheritance, lost property, lost livelihood, lost academic standing, lost social ability within his nation, and is living as, what, an immigrant now in our nation and enjoying the freedom, but is also now what we would call a missionary, who is seeking to share the gospel of Jesus to people just like himself who know his language and social context and is sharing his hope with them. And if he was here, my friend would say, worth the cost. I know who God is, I know who Jesus is. Worth the cost. And so the writer is saying, do you remember those days? Do you remember that in this spectrum from mild disapproval to open humiliation, ridicule, censure, and loss, this is what you decided to do? There was a fellow who's written his biography and others written about him. His name is Pastor Joseph San, and he was in Romania under the communist regime. Under the communist regime, one of the things that they lost was their ability to drive cars. They could only drive wagons pulled by horses a way of identifying them socially everywhere within the community that they were on the wrong side of the equation. But it was also illegal under that state to be able to teach children. No Sunday school, no youth program. Children were forbidden by the state to be taught the gospel. And Joseph son, out of conscience, said, this is untenable, this is against what Jesus told us to do, and taught kids and his family anyway. And he was sent to prison. And when he was in prison, he was beaten badly. He was deprived, faced malnutrition, faced uh, wasn't given blankets, all kinds of deprivation as a means of showing him how deeply the state hated what he stood for. And all he needed to do was recant, and everything would be restored to him. And he refused. At one time, they came into his cell. The government official said, we have decided that we're going to execute you. We'll do it tomorrow. Josephson looked at them his captors and said thank you. He said what do you mean thank you? He said well I've devoted my life to the gospel of Jesus Christ and I have written so much and I have sermons that I've preached and there have been tape cassettes made of those things. And when you kill me, you will martyr me for my faith and people will take those things as never before and they will spread like fire through our country. Thank you for fulfilling my great desire of influencing more people with the gospel of Jesus. They immediately left. They came back. I think it was the next day. And they said, we are not going to kill you we are not going to fulfill your great desire they turned and left and he remained in prison suffering all of those things until his sentence was complete and then he was freed an old man in the church he led came to pick him up in a horse and wagon took him from the prison was taking him what he thought to his home and he said now pastor son i just want you to know we're going to take you to the church because There are people who have prayed for you every single day. We couldn't come to you. They wouldn't allow us to be visitors. Your wife and children couldn't come and see you. No one was allowed to visit you. But we met every day, Pastor, and we prayed for you every day. As they were coming to the church... There were buggies and wagons all by horses just starting to crowd the streets where people had parked them. And when they got to the church, there was a crowd that couldn't fit in the church that was spilling out the outside. And Pastor Son said, what's going on? The old leader stopped and said, Pastor Son, don't you understand? This is for you. Not only did we pray for you, but you suffered for our children you can tell us anything and we will hear you why am i telling you that story because occasionally what god does is he pulls back the curtain and he gives us a little taste of what it means to be waiting and finding the worth of waiting Pastor son didn't live for the honor of his congregation or others who knew about him he lived for the glory of jesus he was willing to suffer He was willing to continue to suffer because he believed in who Jesus was. This is the reality that was going on in this passage of Scripture and why the writer is saying, do you remember how you started out? You faced financial loss. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You didn't consider the loss that you were paying worthy to be compared to what it is you'd received in Jesus. You were willing to face the price. Not only he says in in the next, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Let's sort of unpack that a little bit. The choice to wait on God and to wait for what he promises is what fuels our confidence to say it's worth it. I know what he's done for me. He bears scars for me. He he took my place at the cross. He, He was willing to spend his life so that my life could be redeemed. He was willing to pay whatever the cost was so that I could be reunited to God and have a hope in the future that eclipses every benefit on the planet. That's what he's writing at this passage of Scripture. That's what confidence means. And friends, this is the biggest challenge in our willingness to continue to follow God if the stakes stay the same or if they increase and the pressure grows and we may have that experience. God, this is a bit much. Some of you know my story that Our son, Jonathan, when he was nine years of age, was delivering newspapers and he was struck by a car. Was taken by ambulance to the Nanaimo Hospital. We were living in Parksville there. We'd been there about six months. And then he was air-vacked to Children's Hospital because of the significant injuries. And Donna and I took the ferry because there wasn't room on the aircraft. And he was pronounced dead at 8 o'clock the next morning. And we didn't want to survive that, to be con- honest. We had two little sets of eyes watching us, Ruth and Sarah, who were bewildered and wondered what was happening. And, of course, that incentivized you continuing to live and care but a number of weeks later, as we were processing through the grief and who I am and what happened back in 1990 was there wasn't a lot of grief therapy available, wasn't a lot of stuff to help you process, and best thing I needed to do was just to sink myself in what I knew to do, so I went back preaching three weeks later. And I remember in February, a number of weeks later, I came home and we'd had a wood-burning stove in the basement of the home uh, that we were living in and a chimney fire happened. Well, Well, Peter on the next side of me was through the window yelling at me, call the fire department. He didn't think to call the fire department. He just had thought to tell me to do that. But the neighbor across the street was a little bit more able to sort of think of other things to do, and he came over with a bag of salt and said, Dave, take the ladder, climb up to the top, pour the salt in, it will extinguish the fire. I can't tell you it won't crack your chimney, but it will get rid of the fire, and you you won't have that uh, risk any longer. So I, I did that, and indeed that happened. And after it was all put away, and I sat down on the front steps, and I looked up to heaven, and I said, this is just a bit much. Mercy, please. Now look, I'm not saying that Jonathan died as a direct result of a test, but I want to tell you, in the world we work against, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the flesh being ourselves, the world being a system against God overall, and the devil being the enemy who has declared himself to seek everything he can do against the God we serve and know. This is what I'm telling you. He will never waste an opportunity of human suffering to needle you and ask the question where is god how could this happen don't throw away your confidence is what we're being told that has great reward when you understand that god does not abandon you to your circumstance but walks with you in that circumstance for your good and for his glory That's my testimony for sure. He didn't abandon me. I'm standing here today still declaring the truth of God's word because of how he met me and my family and walked through this, but I can tell you I've got all the wounds and scars of the experience. And I also joyfully have opportunity of telling you where God met me in my own suffering. Hebrews gives us then this encouragement as to how are we to live and wait in confidence before him. In chapter 10 and verse 36, it's going to show on your slide, this is what the text says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you might receive what is promised. Now, it's a very simple and it's a clear instruction. What it means is, That sometimes in life, we wait a long time before we see the fulfillment of God's promise. And that can be a tough adjustment. You know, there was a, a man in our church when I was first preaching back in 1978 in a little church in in uh first baptist church in kamloops i was an associate pastor and i was hired to be both doing youth and some other things but then within a year and a half i was to start planting a new church i can't tell you how how exciting and overwhelming that opportunity was and as i was looking to it one of the older men in the congregation came along to me after i'd preached one sunday and said dave i think this should be a help to you and gave me this text But you have need of patience, was a translation I had at the time. After you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. He was telling me there were probably going to be hard days ahead. Be prepared. Plan to endure. You know that 1970s poster, have you ever seen it somewhere? Where there's a kid with a spaghetti bowl on top of his head. He'd done it to himself. And he just is freaked out. And the bottom line says, mother told me there would be days like this. Our parents do tell us life isn't easy, right? There are some things we need to surmount. There are some challenges we will face. There are all kinds of stop moments, no-go moments. And we are instructed that we should endure. But what we also see in this passage of, of Scripture is that endurance is to be coupled with obedience in other words as we are enduring we don't just stand still we endure in patience as we continue to do the will of god what is that called obey old him trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in jesus but to trust him and do what he says it's old but true it's not trite it's not simple it is easy to say, but it's hard to live out. And we're instructed, though, by some... I want to say in this passage of Scripture of, of Hebrews chapter 10 with some uh, what I want to call obtuse references. Because you read these things, and they're obviously quotes, because most of you, as you're reading them, don't have it sort of as part of the paragraph, but there's some quotations. And if you do some research, you'll find it may refer to Habakkuk chapter 2... And it may refer to Isaiah chapter 26, but you read the passages and you go, oh my goodness, that's a weak reference. How did you get... The answer is, I don't know. There is a reference there. And as I was really reading this through, I went, yeah, that's true. The promise is God is going to come. He's going to care for you. He's going to lead you. He's going to support you. He's going to fulfill you to the promises. Don't quit. But then it says something else. And he says... The one who shrinks back, I'll have no pleasure in him. And then he writes, but we're not those who shrink back. We're confident we're going to go forward. If you look at that word shrink back, it's really connected to the the word fear. Fear. Because if you see elsewhere where it's used, Paul says, for example, I didn't shrink back, but I told you the whole truth of the gospel, meaning I could have sort of told you a bit of it, but not really introduced you to the full scope of it because I wanted you to believe the positive stuff that would be easy to receive, but not the challenge of what calls you to obey and trust. I didn't do that. I gave you the whole thing. In other words, I didn't filter and edit. I told you the truth. But you ha- you're right at that point, right? Like, wow, maybe I shouldn't give them all of that right. Now that would be too much. No, I'm not going to shrink back. So shrinking back here means when you look at what the cost you've already paid and realize there could be a coming cost and you just go, no. Done. Too much. I quit. Cost is too high. And what you're really saying, the reward is too low. I'd rather have the marshmallow now, thank you very much, than what you're promising in the future. So he says, don't do that. Don't, don't pull back. Endurance is to be coupled with unrelenting obedience, a commitment to do the very thing that God has told you to do. And what danced through my brain as I was preparing this is, when did the nation... Not just individuals, but when did the nation reach a point and they said, no. Well, what danced in my brain was right when Israel had a chance after being led by Moses to go into the promised land. Remember that? It's it's immortalized in a Sunday school song that I learned, right? Twelve men went to spy out Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. I probably did the actions wrong, right? Ten were bad and two were good. Okay, let's get that right. Because what was the problem is some saw giants great and tall. But some saw God was in it all. Ten were bad and two were good. What was the point? Israel looked at it. And you know, it actually says, if you go back to Numbers chapter 12, understand this was two years in. What had this group experienced? They had experienced all the plagues. They had experienced the death in the last one of all of the firstborn in Egypt. They had plundered the nation. Their neighbors gave them jewelry and begged them to leave. They had gone to the Red Sea and thought they were going to be slaughtered. And God opened the sea and they crossed it. God gave them water from a rock. God gave them manna in the desert. God gave them quail when they begged for food. He led them. He proved again and again two things. His power and his presence. And they said, not enough. And they cried all night. And then a group of them said, We're going to kill Moses and Aaron. We're going to appoint a new leader, and he's going to take us back where? To Egypt. Right. Slavery. But they said, at least we slept without fear at night. You understand what I'm saying? Serious business. Now look, it sounds like I'm being so hard on them and condemning them. Man, if I was there, I'm not sure which side I would have been on. I want to tell you on the side of those good spies. I don't know. Why? It was hard. It was overwhelming. And here's what I've learned about crisis, and I've learned it in simple and big ways. One time, when I was living in Kamloops with my family at that point planting this church, the neighbor had started building a fence and hadn't completed it and left a whole bunch of the materials on my side without any knowledge, if we were going to work together or do anything, so I went outside and I was just throwing them over the fence and putting them back on his property because I wanted to cut the grass. I took a post and I threw it and I don't know how it happened, it hit something and it came right back for me and I remember I put up my hand to stop the post and protect myself and it bent my fingers where no fingers were ever designed to go from here back to my wrist. At that moment, I've got to tell you, I didn't care if I was a dad, a Christian, or a pastor. I was just in agony. Do you know what I'm saying? Pain has a way of reducing your identity. You just want it to stop. Now, fortunately, it wasn't broken, but now that I'm in my late 60s, I've got a couple of challenges that are cropping up again. But look, I didn't care that I had kids in the backyard. I didn't care that I was a preacher of the gospel. Because my pain eclipsed everything but my experience of it. Pain does that. So where am I going with all of that? I'm going to the point where I'm saying, in conclusion, the call to endure with unrelenting obedience is fueled by the value and hope that we are waiting for God to give us. Our obedience and confidence are fueled by the promises of a God we trust to do what he set us. Despite the pain of our experience. Which actually teaches us the value of endurance and an increased perspective on the hope that is yet to come. But on a personal level, I want to both give you a little compassion for yourself that says if you're in a moment of pain and suffering and anguish, you don't need the message I'm giving to you. You need someone just to care about you and love you and listen to you. Right? When you're suffering, you don't need a lecture. You need a listener a little self-compassion. When you're feeling overwhelmed, it's not as if that's an unusual experience in the Christian journey. It's okay to say, I'm overwhelmed. Doesn't mean you're going to be overwhelmed forever, but it does mean in this moment you need others to come around you and care for you. That's one of the great things of the small groups we're talking about, missional communities. It's a place where you can go and be real and say, right now, life sucks. I just need you to stand with me and help me and pray for me. Because you can't tell them what they need to do for you beyond that. You don't know. A little self-compassion because the journey isn't over. The experience isn't everything. It's just in this. And it's good for us, if we're not in that, to temper our enthusiasm for speaking for God in the life of someone who is suffering, thinking we need to speak for him in his life. Here's the point. He's quite capable of defending himself. He doesn't need us to use our strong boots and trod on others in the process of silencing them because we're disquieted by what they're saying right now. But it may be in this passage that as you're reading this you've reached a certain point where you realize that there is an obedience line in your life and it's challenging for you and you're sort of slowing down with that. Don't throw your confidence away. The promises of God are as faithful as they've ever been. You need him now as much as you did at the beginning and at this point a call for commitment to continue the journey yeah, there are days like this, but they're not the only day. So he's telling us not to shrink back. He's telling us to continue in the journey. He's telling us to remember how God met us in those valleys. And we're learning that every new crisis in our discipleship can come as a crisis of faith. And it is, will we trust God in this new need by doing what he says Is the wait worth it? And we who have followed are saying, yes. It's worth the wait. Can you see that endurance is not only putting up with pressures we face outside of ourselves, but enduring with doubt and misgivings and questions, disappointments and frustrations and fears that sometimes arise within us? So on a personal level, will you practice that endurance? Will you make that decision because of who God is and who he's been in your life to say, God, I trust you. And if you tell me it's worth the wait, I believe you. And wait on him. And anticipate him. And walk with him. And and corporately, uh, we're at the edge of a very important decision that calls for us to wait on God and to believe that he is going to bring us a leader that will guide us in the next phase of life and ministry. And to practice that faith and hope. Because he's the head of the church. And will guide us. Because, you know, truthfully, we could say to one another, well, Well, you know, Matt was one of a kind. And he was. He was so good, and he was. And we've lost so much, and we have. But let's put a pin in that for a moment and say, God, who is the head of our church, Jesus, who is among us, who loves us and shed his blood to redeem us, will not abandon us now. And so with confidence, which has great reward, we'll come before him and do what we can, trusting what only he can do, to unite us to someone who will adopt us as a family, and we will adopt into the leadership composite of our church. And trust that what lies ahead of us will be as good as what lies behind us. Because he's faithful and good. And it's worth the wait. Father, thank you for your promises, for your challenges that sometimes that are hard to receive but for your faithfulness that in all of these things we never walk alone. Even when our faculties tell us that we are alone, and our fears overwhelm us, and our pain grips us, even in these things you are faithful and true, and what you've promised you will do. So we say thank you. And I lead us in a prayer of commitment to say we will do as you've asked. In Jesus' name, amen.